Well, good morning and welcome this morning. Glad to have you here in worship with us this morning, especially if you're a visitor. We're glad to have you. And if you're not a visitor, then be sure to say hello to someone who is this morning. Um, we are in the Psalms right now, and so you can find Psalms 42 and 43 on page 6 in your worship bulletin there or in your Bible if you prefer that. And uh, so we're in a, a, a sequence of sermons on the Psalms and not approaching it from 1 to 150, again, as I've mentioned, but rather uh, by type. Psalms come in various types, and, and the Psalms, as we saw last week and the week before, teach us really to be human beings. They're expressions of humanity to us in inspired Scripture. They teach us many things, to worship and to pray and to praise and to sing. They also teach us to express sorrow, to express regret, to express unhappiness. In other words, they teach us to lament. And so this, this morning, we're going to look at a psalm of lament. Last week, we saw a psalm of confidence. The week before, a psalm of wisdom. This one is a psalm of lament, and it's a two-for-one, Psalms 42 and 43 together. I don't know why they're divided in your, in your Bible. It might just be kind of an indication of the fact that, that verse numbers and chapter numbers are kind of manufactured by, I don't, I don't know who manufactured those, but the writers didn't do that. Um, and uh, the Psalms are distinct. These two are, are really one Psalm, and it might be that they were divided ages ago for some liturgical reason. No one really knows. Maybe in order to sing it, as we did moments ago, I hope you noticed that we sang Psalm 42. And that's a, a new song to us as of a couple of weeks ago. Brian Franklin introduced that to us. He's put that psalm to music for our singing. And so it's a new song for you to sing. It takes a little while to learn to sing it. I understand as you kind of kind of stumble through it and figure out the, the notes and and all, but uh, I exhort you to continue learning to sing it. We'll sing it again. But we've sung it this morning. You've already sung the scripture. It's a, a scripture that comes really in three sections, uh, divided by a refrain, which you'll hear three times as we go through this psalm together. So beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? 
Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we do pray that you would be with us. Would you grant to us understanding, grant to us your spirit so that we can see and understand how to lament. Help us, Lord, in our discouragement. Help us to recognize the fallenness of our own souls and of all that's around us and to turn to you in hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our elementary age kids in the School of Life and Doctrine on Sunday evenings are studying through and reading together The Pilgrim's Progress, that classic Christian work from hundreds of years ago. And it's a, a, a metaphorical story. I hope that you know it, that you've read it. If, you not, you sh- if not, you should. The story of, of a man named Christian and his friend Hopeful who are on the path, on their way, journeying to the celestial city. And they have a number of adventures along the way, metaphorical to elements of the Christian life. One of those is that they meet a very inhospitable character named Giant Despair. They intrude, they, they, they trespass onto his land, and he takes them captive. He's a giant. His name is Despair, and he throws them into the dungeon of his castle, which is called Doubting Castle. They're captured. They're imprisoned. They're in the dungeon in the darkness, and he beats them. He mocks them, and he taunts them even to take their own lives. They're stuck there for a week. They can't get out. And after a week of beatings and mockery and taunting to take their own lives, finally Christian looks at his friend Hopeful and says, Oh yeah, I forgot. I've got this key in my pocket that was given to me by another friend earlier in our travels. It's, it's the key of promise. This key will open any door of such a doubting castle. And with that key of promise, the word of God, they escape. This psalm is a venture into Doubting Castle. For you grown-ups who aren't reading the book right now, you maybe should, this is a venture into Doubting Castle. Now, I'm no psychotherapist. I'm no psychologist. I have no expertise at all in those arenas of academia. The only psychology class that I took was Psych 101 in college my freshman year. Some of you took the same sort of class. That's that class where there are 318 or 19-year-olds crammed into an auditorium listening to the celebrity psychologist on campus talking about these things. And after a few weeks of class, what you begin to realize is it's really not so much a class for your benefit as it is that you're simply populating the subject pool for the grad student experiments as they try to figure out your mind and your heart. But that's the only class that I took. I'm no expert. I do know, though, that clinical depression is a major problem in our society. And worldwide, it's, it's a very common concern. And this psalm reads kind of like a patient 
reclined on the, the therapist's couch and spilling the beans of all that's going on in his or her mind and heart. And even if it's not clinical depression, it's at the very least a believer who knows what it is to be deeply discouraged. Some of you have such a happy disposition naturally that this psalm might be kind of a stretch for you. I I heard one wise person suggest that the real way to find out who's your best friend is to take the one you think is your best friend along with your pet dog and lock them both in the trunk of your car and leave them there for 30 minutes. Then come back and open it up and let them out and see which one is happy to see you. Then you know who your best friend is. Some of you maybe are in your disposition kind of like that happy dog who's wagging tail and licking hands coming out of a locked trunk. You're just happy to see people all the time. And maybe, you know, maybe this psalm might be a bit of a stretch for you. It is a psalm of lament. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, out of the Psalter, 150 psalms, how many of them are psalms of lament? Do you remember? Fifty of them. A third of them are psalms expressing sorrow and regret and unhappiness and frustration and discouragement. Psalms of lament, 50 of them. That's almost twice the number of the next largest category of psalms. There are so many of them. Some of them are individual psalms like this one. Some of them are community psalms of lament. Um, But this is an individual psalm, and it shows us that there are very legitimate reasons for you to be deeply discouraged at times. Christians can be among the worst people for dealing with and and finding help with such discouragement as this. You know, we we often think that we can just throw a Bible verse at it and make it all better, like like a couple of aspirin or something for a headache. You know, your friend comes to you and they're discouraged and you might easily just want to say to them, well, well, you know that all things work for good for those who are called according to God's purpose and so it's all going to work out right. Or you might look at them and say, well, you know, if you, if you confess your sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And so if there's some sin that's at work in you, just do that and, and you'll be better. Or we might even just say, well, pray without ceasing. That's what the Bible says. Pray without ceasing, Paul writes to the Thessalonians. If you just do that, then everything will be better. We think we can throw a verse at it and heal discouragement. But it's just not that simple to take a, a moralistic and mechanical approach to, to helping someone with discouragement. You know, we almost take the approach of the power of positive thinking, which you might know was a very popular 20th century American heresy that was born out of of churches, one in particular in New York City, and one pastor in particular who who bore this particular heresy. And and the thrust of it was simply to say there are no reasons for you to be discouraged. Just think positive thoughts. Just be optimistic and you'll be okay. It was kind of like the proverbial ostrich sticking his head in the sand as the lion approaches. And it's just foolishness. And it's not what the Psalms have to say about discouragement. There are legitimate reasons for being discouraged, for being deeply discouraged even at times. And it's not even necessarily because of any particular sin. This psalmist gives no indication of having committed some particular heinous, gross crime or sin that he's now repenting of. It gives no indication of that at all. It's not even necessarily that. A biblical lament says, problems are everywhere. 
They're out there and they're in here and I have to deal with them. I recognize that they are real, but I don't know how to explain this. I don't know how to, to, to deal with this and approach this according to my own heart. How can these things be so? There are all kinds of reasons, legitimately, for your discouragement at times. One of them is isolation. The psalmist gives some indication of that. Verse 2, he says, When shall I come and meet with God? In other words, he is not where he wants to be. He wants an opportunity to go and to meet with God. In verses 4 and 5, he explains how he used to go with the Israelite crowds to worship God. And it was a joyful procession. It was a, a celebratory time, as he recalls it. But now, he says, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. In other words, he's not in Jerusalem. He's not in Israel with God's people. He's out of bounds. He's not where he wants to be. He's been separated, isolated from his people. And we don't really know why. Maybe it's an exilic psalm, a psalm of the exile. Maybe he's been taken away with the people from Jerusalem, and maybe he's lamenting that. We don't really know, but he's isolated from his community. Moments ago, we read from the New Testament reading in the Gospel of Luke, that, that picture of Jesus in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night on which he was betrayed, and he, he went with his disciples there. He was leading them there into lament. They just didn't really understand it. Luke explains there that the, the disciples were exhausted with sorrow, But they couldn't bear it. They just fell asleep. And Jesus went off on his own and prayed and he came back to them and they weren't with him. And he was in despair praying that this cup would be taken from him. But it was not. He was isolated from his community. As Americans, we are very individualistic. You know, we tend to do our own thing and to separate ourselves from one another. And that can be dangerous. Back in October, you remember the Ebola out outbreak, as it were. There was, what, three patients here in Dallas. And during that time, after the man from Africa was diagnosed in the hospital, they took preemptive measures and they had to quarantine 179 people. Most of them were medical workers who had some exposure to that particular patient and, and others in his, his apartment complex where he was. And for three weeks, for 29, 21 days, those people were separated from the world, isolated from the world, put off on their own in quarantine out of medical necessity. And, and in reflection, they, there was just an article in the paper about it the other day talking about how they suffered from the, the stress and the despair of being isolated and alone. They couldn't go out to the grocery store to buy bread, and people had to come and help them to bring them what they needed. In a sense, we do that as Christians to ourselves. We separate ourselves from one another, and we, we take on our faith in Christ on our own, and we put ourselves in isolation. That can, that can bring about discouragement eventually. It's why we have small group ministries. It's why we have home groups. It's why we have small group Bible studies. And you gather together in, in groups, in, in, in fellowship with one another. You, you host people in your home, or you go to someone's home for lunch or for dinner and encourage one another. You can't be isolated it's a breeding ground for discouragement. Another reason is oppression. That's a, a frequent expression in Psalm, Psalms of Lament is the oppression of our enemies. And he says there are enemies, verses 9 and 10. Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? In fact, he says that two times in the psalm. 
In fact, it's so bad that he explains that my bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where's your God? Where's your God? Where's your God? Because the enemies think your God doesn't exist. And so they're taunting you like giant uh, despair. You know the world we live in doesn't believe the gospel, and so it's going to ask this question of you. Whenever problems arise, whenever you have health issues or tragedy or loss of job or a broken relationship or no relationship at all and you long for one, in your old age you're forgotten in a retirement home and no one comes to see you and the questions begin to come from the skeptic, where is your God? They may even come with patronizing kindness. Oh, now let me show you, Christian, what I've known all along. Where is your God anyway? Now you see, because of your troubles, your God isn't there, and it brings about discouragement. Another reason is perhaps association. Kind of like guilt by association, discouragement by association. One of the subtleties of this particular psalm, which you don't see in our bulletin, but in your scripture it would show you that it's written by the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were the authors of this particular psalm. And that label in the Psalms, the sons of Korah, is a scarlet letter of sorts. If you remember that literary reference to where a scarlet letter means in the Puritan world that that you're guilty of something, that there's some association with you that brings guilt upon you. And that guilt by association in this case is Korah, the great-great-grandfather of these sons who himself was the great-grandson of Levi, the head of the priestly tribe. And Korah challenged Moses in Numbers, the book of Numbers, challenged Moses' leadership, saying, Moses, look, we're all holy before God. Who are you to tell us what to do? And God judged Korah. The ground broke open and swallowed him up along with his fellow challengers. In Numbers 26, we read a little bit of a census describing now who is left among those of Israel. And the writer tells us, But the sons of Korah did not die. The sons of the man were kind of a remnant left over after God's judgment. And now in the Psalms, they're known collectively as the sons of Korah. They're not named individually, almost as though in in, uh, a group there's safety in numbers. The sons of Korah. We all have a family history. By association, we're, we're stuck with it. In premarital counseling, I, I always ask a couple about their family history. Is there divorce in your family in the past? What's even the, the health history of your family? Are there particular things that your fiancé needs to know before you tie the knot? Do you have a great-great-great-grandfather who challenged God's anointed and got swallowed up by the earth, in other words? Is there something that you need to know here that by association might bring discouragement? You might be discouraged simply because you've not recognized the redemptive power of the gospel over generational sin. As you recognize generational sin in your past and wonder, how is that going to affect me and my children? At some point, someone in the generations has to say, that has to stop here. And in the power of the gospel, you can do that. But when you forget, you become discouraged. 
All these reasons lead the psalmist then to some very understandable struggles. In fact, any season of discouragement is a season of struggle, if you are honest about it, and that's completely understandable. One of those struggles is your longings, which are, in the midst of discouragement, intensified maybe, and maybe even twisted and confused as you struggle with it. He writes, he begins the psalm, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for the living God. He's thirsty for something. He's using a metaphor. A deer is, is, is panting and thirsty. It can't find water. It needs water to survive. And he needs, he's longing for the living God. And he refers to God as Elohim, not, not Yahweh, but Elohim the one true God, the one true God after which every soul longs, even the non-Christian soul. Even the non-Christian soul has this longing because it's central to the core of being human to long for what's good, to long for what's beautiful, to long for satisfaction and meaning. Every one of us longs for this. My kids are in junior high school, and, and they've begun to ask the questions now and then, right, guys, about why do I need to go to school? Do I really need to study math? Do I need to know this bit of history? And, and it's, those are the kind of the first questions of, of seeking after meaning, of asking the questions of, can I be meaningful without these details, maybe? You know, we're all after meaning, and we want to understand the pieces of our lives, and why they fit the way that they do. In other words, we really want to be, as we saw just last week, I think, we want to be back in the garden. We want to get back into the Garden of Eden where we know that everything is right, where we know that purpose and position were clear, where we have a reason for being, where everything is in order and in its place because God established the garden according to his own order and placement of things, and that's where we belong. We long to be there. And so the psalmist declares, My soul thirsts for the living God. It's a, de- it's a declaration of discouragement because circumstances show him the reality that he's not in the garden. He's not in the garden in real life, and neither are you. Neither am I. We're, we're not there. And so our expectations and our, our, our aspirations go unfulfilled. You're underemployed. You're unequally yoked. You're disrespected and you're misunderstood by those around you. And therefore, you have big frustrations. There's another struggle for you. His soul is cast down. In fact, so much so that he begins to mirror the prophet Jonah in his words. Did you hear those details? In verse 7, deep calls to deep. In the roar of your waterfalls, O God, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. Just like the prophet Jonah. In the belly of the fish, the frustration and the anguish are are rising as though floodwaters have risen up to his ears and he's gasping for breath. He's in the darkness and it's descended upon him in the form of spiritual isolation, maybe even. And you know that does actually happen to us, that... The Westminster Confession, our our confessional standards as a church, write about this in chapter 18. It's an interesting chapter on the topic of a Christian's assurance in the the Christian life. How can you really be 
assured of the fact that you belong to God and you can be so assured. But the writers were very realistic and they write this. Though you can be assured by God's grace of your position with Him, yet true believers may have their assurance shaken in various ways. What are the ways? Neglecting to preserve it. You can just neglect to preserve your assurance by your own actions or lack thereof. Or falling into some particular sin that wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit. We know that's not exactly the case with this psalmist, but that's a reason for this particular struggle. Or by sudden and powerful temptation that overtakes you. Or simply by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even those who fear him to walk in darkness for a time. Sometimes, sometimes God simply withdraws his smile. Sometimes he withdraws his countenance and allows for one he loves to walk in darkness for a time. I don't know why, but sometimes he does. The, the, the confession appeals to many psalms for its scriptural proof of such a thing. And we know in the reality of our lives that this does happen. And such frustrations like this lead to questions, ultimately. Why? 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 I mean, the psalmist ten times in this prayer asks that question, why? It's okay, you know, to ask God why. It's okay. This is part of why we have psalms of lament, to encourage you in your discouragement to know it's okay for me to ask God why. Verse 9, he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And then in 43, verse 2, he says, You're the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why? One of the darkest days of my life was spent in circumstances that should have been, on all accounts, one of the brightest days of my life, ironically. Mary and I were in western North Carolina. Our kids were at summer camp. And... It was just the two of us. We had made arrangements to be at the Natahala Outdoor Center. Some of you have been there before in western North Carolina. If you've not, you should go. It's a beautiful place. It's an amazing place with all kinds of great things to do outdoors in a beautiful spot. And we had made arrangements to be there in order to spend the morning together on the zipline course up on the mountain with a mile-long zipline that shoots you across valleys and trees. It's a beautiful, amazing experience. And then in the afternoon after lunch, we'd go on a raft down the river and spend the day rafting on the cold waters of the Nantahala River. And so this was the day that was before us. And I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and I could not sleep. It was pitch black dark. And I was, for various reasons at the time, struggling with the question of my own calling as a pastor. I was, was, was asking the, the question, am I even useful anymore in ministry? Why has God got me in this place? Why am I in this circumstance? I don't understand. There's nothing stirring that will cause me to wonder that I possibly have any use in ministry anymore at this point. My soul was totally downcast, just like this writer here. And we got up in the morning and went to the zipline course, and, and I was just kind of down all day, but I was putting on the face to enjoy. And at times, the, the sun, figuratively speaking, would break through, and I'd enjoy what we were doing together. But I was downcast all day long in the depth of my soul. That's where it was. 
And finally, in the evening, after spending a day out in the beautiful, in the beautiful nature of western North Carolina, finally, before we went to dinner, Mary could just see the downcast coming over my face, and she asked me, are you okay? And I finally just had to say, no, I'm not. I am not okay. My soul was so downcast that even a beautiful day in a beautiful place with a beautiful woman who loves me could not bring me out of it. I was asking questions that I couldn't answer. Now, a skeptical person is going to look at this, at these questions in this psalm, and say, there's my reason to believe that the Bible is not inspired after all. I mean, because what God would inspire such words of doubt in himself. What God would let his people ask him questions like this? No God is going to let his little creatures call him on the carpet for forgetting him. No God is going to let his little creatures ask him the question, why? The Muslim God would certainly not do that. We know that. You see that by the the news accounts of that. The Muslim God would not allow such disrespect, right? You don't question him. No God would allow this sort of question who is insecure. In other words, our God, the God, Elohim, is infinitely secure in who he is. He knows who he is. He knows why he does what he does. And therefore, he's inspired such questions for us who are not secure. We're completely insecure in who we are and where we are, and therefore we ask these questions, and God allows it. No, He inspires it in His Scripture so that we can learn to ask the question in the face of the lion coming. We're not the ostrich sticking our head in the sand. We're asking the question, God, why? Why is this? We need some resolution, don't we? This discouraged Christian finds it. He finds a way out with some very unlikely resolutions. Here, you know, in the, in the face of discouragement, there are all kinds of likely resolutions, and, and you find your own ways to them in your own circumstances. Some of you, in the face of discouragement, go shopping. You know, maybe you head over to North Park Mall or some other place to go shopping. Some of you open that box of Valentine chocolates, and you find, you know, relief from your discouragement there, perhaps. Some of you who are healthier maybe go for a run. You go and run five or ten miles or something like that. Maybe you ride bikes around White Rock Lake and you go and escape your discouragement and resolve it that way. A few years ago, in some circumstance, I was just very frustrated and and discouraged about some things that were going on. And so I left the church office and I went over to the batting cages on Park Lane by Top Golf. And I spent an hour swinging a baseball bat at, at yellow plastic baseballs. And I did it until I felt 50 years old. I'm not even 50 years old, but it took me about, a, about an hour to get there. That's one way that I resolved my own discouragement at the time. But this son of Korah takes a more unlikely approach. He takes actually a more gospel approach to it. He deals with it, one, by remembering. So back in verse 4, with tears on his face and with skeptical questions in his ears, he says this, These things I remember. As I pour my soul out before you, oh God, these things I remember. Now, this man was apparently a leader in temple worship. 
in, in some role as the sons of Korah, a writer of psalms and, and liturgy, a, a great-grandson of Levi. He was the leader in the temple worship, and he remembers the great blessing that it was of gathering with God's people. Now, come forward in redemptive history to today. That's what this is right now. What he's remembering is corporate worship together and what a blessing and joy it was. It was celebration. It was time to be encouraged by one another and with one another in the presence of God himself. And he remembers that. And verse 6, My soul's downcast within me, therefore I will remember you, O God. I'll, I'll remember you. Even if it's from far away, I'll remember you. And then verse 7, he continues, Caught up in his anguish, deep calls to deep, the breakers have swept over me. But then in verse 8, you find out what he remembers. Look at verse 8. What does he remember? By day, the Lord, notice the all capitals there, that's important. The Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. It's an important subtlety here in this psalm. The Lord, all capitals, is Yahweh, God's covenant name. Now, an interesting thing about the psalms is that book one of the psalms is number one through number 41. The first 41 psalms. And in those psalms, God is referred to almost exclusively, not entirely, but almost exclusively as Yahweh, the covenant name of God. In book 2, which is Psalms 42 to 72, God is referred to almost exclusively as Elohim, the God of the universe. But here's an exception. The one time that Yahweh shows up in this psalm, here it is, by day, Yahweh directs His love. Yahweh is the covenant name of God that belongs to His people whom He's chosen. And they belong to Him because He's placed upon them His love, His chesed, the Hebrew word chesed, His covenant love for His people. That love by which He has chosen me and voluntarily bound Himself to me. And therefore, guess what? He remembers me. The psalmist resolves his discouragement by remembering that God remembers him. This is the importance of covenant theology. As we in a Presbyterian make a church make a big deal out of covenant theology at times, we do it every time we baptize a child, that God has chosen us. He's come for us. We've not come for him. We've not gone to him. He's come to us, and he remembers us because of these things. But you know, discouragement is a fickle thing. I mean, look, look at the psalmist in the very ver- next verse, verse 9. He says something that should give you a little relief because you want to ask this too. To God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? I mean, he's just referred to God as the covenant Yahweh whose place is hesed upon him, the one who's remembered him. And he says, why have you forgotten me? In other words, I think it's almost, there's some sense of irony here. He's saying, in other words, This was your idea, Lord. Yahweh, this was your idea. And have you forgotten me? Surely not. Surely not. So he resolves his discouragement by remembering. He also resolves it by talking. Paul Tripp uh, is a a counselor and a pastor. and, And one of the things he says is that the single most influential person in your life is you. And that's always the case. Whoever you are and whoever your heroes and your mentors are, the single most important person in your life, most influential, not important, but most influential person in your life is you. Why? Because you talk to yourself. 
You're the one all day long who's in your own head. You're the one who's talking to yourself more than anybody else is. And most of your discouragement is because you listen to yourself rather than talking to yourself in the gospel. Talking to yourself, in some sense, is a spiritual gift, you know? It kind of is. I talk to myself a lot, especially in the car. I bet you do, too. You talk to yourself in the shower. You talk to yourself in the car. The times when you're alone, you talk to yourself. When I was in, I don't know, ninth grade or so, my brother and I and I were mowing lawns for neighbors to make some money. Sometimes I'd be, be pushing the mower, and he would be running the edge or along the sidewalk. And when I was pushing the lawnmower, with all the, the noise of the lawnmower kind of shutting me off from the world around me, I would talk to myself. And I wouldn't really realize it. I, you know, I, had, I would have these things running through my mind, these scenarios. And one time, I was mowing the grass. He was edging. And after I was done, my brother came up to me and he said, So what were you talking about? I didn't know I'd been running my mouth. I just knew in my head... I was the batter at bat in the bottom of the ninth inning when my team was down by three and the bases were loaded. And I hit a grand slam, and I ran the whole commentary on the thing in my head. Apparently, I was doing it with my mouth, too. You've done that before. You talk to yourself sometimes, don't you? It's a spiritual gift to do it. You find it in the refrain of this poem. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He's talking to himself. You did it in the song we sang a while ago. Why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. He's giving himself instructions. He's telling himself what to do. Hope in God because I will again praise him, soul. I will do this again, so you may as well come along with me. He's exhorting himself by talking to himself. Oh, my soul, hope in God. You know, if you're on the psychotherapist's couch you probably ought to start talking to yourself. But not just with aimless, meaningful discouragement to yourself. Tell yourself what you're going to do again. You're going to praise God again. So soul, come along with me. He also resolves it by following verse 43, chapter 43, verse 3. The whys are still coming. You know, why have you rejected me? Why must I mourn? And so on. But on their heels, he makes a very wise request. He says, Send forth your light and your truth, O Lord. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Let them guide me. Let me follow them out of this discouragement. What is the light and the truth that Yahweh sends? I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am. He sends himself in the flesh. This is what he sends to you. This is what the psalmist is calling for. He sends himself in the flesh. And where do you find him? You find him, as the psalmist has said, in the throng, in the, in the house of God, in the congregation, singing songs of praise and keeping festival of worship together and fellowship together. And you find him at his table. Even in the, the mysterious sacraments that are given to you in order to encourage your soul, even and especially maybe when you're filled with doubt. Just like the man who came to Jesus saying, help me, and Jesus asked him, and the man said, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. This is what you do when you come to the table. 
I do believe, I believe this, but Lord, help me with my unbelief. Let me follow you, O Lord, out of my discouragement. This psalm doesn't end very well. You know, really, it's very realistic. He's still talking to himself. He's still trying to persuade himself as he repeats the the refrain yet again, Why are you cast down? Oh, my soul, why? But it's okay that it doesn't end well, isn't it? It's okay. Because a psalm of lament doesn't need to tie up in a neat little bow all of your troubles. It doesn't try to do that. It legitimizes your discouragement. That's what it does. It it legitimizes it. It understands it even. And then, then, it shows you that in the gospel, there is a way out. There is resolution in the gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, would you grant to us faith. Would you grant to us that we might believe that you have not left us, that you, O Lord, are with us, that you encourage our souls, even in times when you might withdraw your countenance from us, yet still you are with us, O Lord. Would you strengthen our hearts, enable us to believe, and enable us to come to your tables together that we might in our souls be encouraged. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.